The reading is, the reading is Luke 15, uh, verses 11 to 32, page 1049. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got all, together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, What was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Good morning. Can everybody hear me? Thank you. You know, if you type the phrase a welcoming, caring, generous Christian community into Google, you get 26,400,000 hits. Yeah, I was amazed at that as well. But that indicates how basic is our need to be part of a welcoming and caring community, a welcoming and caring Christian community, and so much is our desire as Christians to be those who are welcoming and caring of others. We share our first value with an awful lot of Christians worldwide. 
but how often we, fail short, we fall short of these lofty ideals. After I left college, I settled into a large church in southwest London in Teddington. It's a wealthy area, a middle-class area, and we had a reputation for being lively. And I was part of a, a group of folk newly out of university, settling into our first jobs, our first homes. It was our first grown-up church. As a group, we met on Sunday evenings, and we called ourselves Koinonia. Some of you will remember that as the Christian buzzword of the time. It's a, a Greek word which means communion by intimate participation, the idealized state of fellowship and community that should exist within the Christian church. But our group didn't work out like that. Instead, we were disparate, we were dysfunctional as a group, and we probably expected relationships to just happen because we'd called the group koinonia. Rather than being prepared to work at relationships, to invest time with each other, be real, be open with each other, our meetings tended to degenerate into group moaning sessions. So we changed our name to the Spring Group, which stood for Same People Reorganised into New Group. <laughs> we were clever dicks as well. <laughs> And that was the heart of our problem. We were the same people. Instead of turning to God in repentance for our attitudes and in prayer to seek only him and his ways for our lives, we carried our baggage, our moans with us. We should have been called the What About Us group, or even more so, the What About Me group, the Wham group. The church was being encouraged to become more welcoming and more caring. But as a group, we identified more closely with the older brother in the parable, although we didn't recognize it at the time. In answer to our moans of what about me, God, our Father, the creator of the universe, wanted us to hear, you are with me always, and everything I have is yours. If we'd got to grips with that verse, with that promise to us from Almighty God, God our Father, we might have developed into a group. We might have developed into the group we had the potential to be and used our God-given talents and gifts for his purposes. Over the years, God has challenged me time and time again over the what about me it can be very uncomfortable to be challenged by God, can't it? Last week I read this passage by Timothy Keller, who's leader of one of the largest churches in Manhattan. And he says, Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious whilst offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. However, in the main, our churches today do not have this effect. The kind of outsiders Jesus attracted are not attracted to contemporary churches, even the most avant-garde ones. We tend to draw conservative, buttoned-down, moralistic people. The licentious and the liberated or the broken and the marginal avoid church. That can only mean one thing. If we do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did.
I sat and reread that quote several times. I felt shocked inside at its implication. We don't have the traditions of the Pharisees to uphold, the legalism of the Levitical law to hide behind. So what is our message to the world around us? And as I thought through what this passage had said, I had to face some uncomfortable questions. How many of the older brother's attitudes do I have? What dregs of the what about me have clung over the years? He wanted me to deal with them before him. But in reply, as I laid those things before God, John 8 verse 36 says, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. We are free to love all whom Jesus loves, free to be generous to the poor, free to bring the wholeness of God into the broken lives around us, free to be open and honest with each other, free to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn, free to declare the message, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our communities, free to live as a caring, welcoming, generous community of believers. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, Christian community is not an ideal we have to realize, but rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. The more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of all our community is in Jesus Christ alone, the more calmly we will learn to think about our community and to pray and hope for it. And what about the younger brother? The situation Jesus described was perhaps not all that unusual in those days. In a translation of an ancient letter from a man named Antonius Longus to his mother, he says, I'm writing to tell you, I am naked. I plead with you, forgive me. I know well enough what I have done to myself. I have learned my lesson. In asking for his inheritance, the younger brother was wishing his father dead. But it was actually the younger son that faced death, not his father. When he had nothing left, when all he could do was work with the pigs, his employers, during the time of famine, saw his life as less valuable than that of his pigs. They refused to let him eat the pig food. He could starve to death whilst the pigs ate. So he decided to return to his father's house. But even in returning, he still tried to dictate the conditions of return. He would be a hired hand. How little he knew his father. How well do we know our father God? The father's capacity to forgive, to love, went far beyond anything the son could imagine. God our Father's capacity to love us, to accept us, to forgive us, is far and above anything we have the capacity to grasp. As Colossians 3, 12 to 14 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. 
And if any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgives you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Neither son was able to enjoy their father. Neither of them really knew him. For the younger son, the father was a cash machine, so he could indulge his desires and wants. For the older son, the father was the owner of the fatted calf, the one who could throw a party for him and his friends. This is a story about a father's determination to love his children, despite despite it all. And love makes us vulnerable. Love exposes us to the pain of rejection. Love makes us susceptible to betrayal. But the father in this story loves us anyway, because love is at the core, the heart of who he is. He's a wise and compassionate parent whose love is immeasurable. God wants us to grasp how deeply we are loved. And it's because of God's love for us that we are shown how to live and are able to love others. And as we heard last week, when we come to our Heavenly Father, leaving in his care all we hold dear, leaving behind all we would cling to as false security, when we drop the baggage we carry at the foot of the cross, then the fragrance of Jesus is released in our lives. A few years ago, I was invited to the inaugural service of a new monastic community. One of the community members told us how he'd spent sleepless nights leading up to the service. How well did he really know these people? Did he really want to be connected with them? Did he even like them? What if they made demands on him? And would they really accept him if they really knew him? Well, the good news is that God doesn't have sleepless nights before he invites us to join his community of believers. Instead, he looks out for us. He sees us coming from far away and then welcomes us in, accepts us and forgives us. Luke 5 verse 7 tells us that the community of heaven rejoices. We are welcomed with rejoicing into his community. And we are God's community on earth. And as such, we have been given the awesome task of welcoming, of caring, of sharing generously, not just with each other, but also with those who are far off on their journey home. The image I came home with and that stayed with me from last week is that we, as God's people here, are being woven into a tapestry of grace, a community of grace, woven together by the Holy Spirit. Amen.